obviously technology stocks can be extremely volatile, especially semiconductors. And I think that I learned very quickly, you have to understand the downside of anything you're potentially going to buy, whether it's a stock, a bond, a private investment. Otherwise, you're going to stick with that investment too long. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. This episode is sponsored by ASTOTS Academy, which offers online courses to help investors better manage their stock portfolios, aspiring professionals to learn how to value any company in the world, business leaders to make their companies financially world-class, and even beginners to implement a simple lifetime investment plan. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com to get free access to my short course, Six Ways to Lose Your Money and Six Strategies to Win, where I share the six lessons I've learned from all of these podcast interviews. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guest, Michelle Connell. Michelle, are you ready to rock? Yes, sir, I am. <laughs> well, I'm so happy to have you on, and I'm going to tell the audience a bit about you. So, Michelle owns Porsche Capital Management, a registered investment advisory firm specializing in the investments of foundations, charities, and high net worth individuals. Porsche Capital Management is the only investment management firm in the Dallas-Fort Worth area to be owned by a female CFA charter holder, an important resource in a world where 60% of women retire in poverty. Michelle's expertise is backed by more than 20 years of financial experience in management positions with large investment boutiques and private banks. She is also one of the highest rated finance professors in the U.S., currently serving as an adjunct professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. She works with her students and her clients to understand the value of crafting a portfolio that includes conventional products as well as alternative investments. In addition to her work with students and clients, Michelle teaches the CFA review through the Dallas-Fort Worth CFA Society. She has also founded Portia's Children to which up to 10% of her company's profit are donated to the North Texas Charity Educational First Steps. Wow, Michelle, you do a lot of stuff. Please take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Let me see where I could start. It all started in Seattle, where my mother tells me at the age of five, I loved watching the stock tape go across the building in uh, downtown Seattle. And I just had an affinity for stocks at an early age and came to love finance also, because at a young age, I helped take care of my family and was put to work at 15 and had to find a way to get into college and pursue a career in finance because I realized at that young age that the only way that you're going to have any security is understanding money and finance. Mm. That's interesting. And it's, uh, you know, there's lots of different reasons why people get into the world of finance. And, you know, I think what I can see about your reason and why you came in also is part of your reason, I guess, why you're helping a lot of other people to, to make some financial, you know, stability in their life. It's interesting, you mentioned the statistic that 60% of women retire in poverty. That is the statistic for the United States. I need to qualify that. 
I don't know what it is for the rest of the world. I'm guessing it would be something similar. I know in parts of Asia, Japan, for instance, is actually worse. I don't know what it is for Europe. I think the issue is that women are raised to be caregivers. And so they're either taking care of their children or and or they're taking care of their parents or their in-laws. And so they spend less time in work, less time pursuing their career. And now with COVID, that's actually more of a problem because one in four working mothers, when polled recently in the United States, said that they're gonna pull back on their careers and the number of hours they're working. They're just overwhelmed you know, with mm. having to oversee their children's education right now. Yeah, it's a lot. And it also, you know, there's a whole nother aspect. And I think of my mother and my father, they work together on the finances of the family. So my mother knew you know, what was going on. I think there's a lot of women who may decide to leave it to their husbands or husbands that don't want to share it with their wives. And, you know, I think that one of the things that is so important is that if you're a woman and you're in a relationship where the husband or the boyfriend is not sharing that information, that it really is important to kind of step up and say, I want to talk about this. I want to be a part of this because there's so many cases where, you know, women are left out and then all of a sudden disaster strikes. Yes, there's a 90% probability, I, I probably know way too many statistics, but there's a 90% probability in the United States that at some point during her life, a female is going to be in charge of a family's finances. That doesn't mean you know necessarily a divorce, that means you could lose a spouse, they could become disabled, you know, they could become incapacitated. 90% is, you know, it's, it means it's going to happen, right? Mm. It probably is going to happen versus not. What worries me is that a lot of millennial women, at least I got to qualify it again, the United States, one out of four are they're They're saying finance and investments is, it's just too difficult. They won't even go near the subject because they think it's brain surgery or something. It's not, it's just, they're a little bit overwhelmed by, you know, the subject. And I think also, as you kind of the topic of your podcast, the downside, women really focus on how much they can lose. Whereas women, a men rather typically to their credit are more focused on the upside, sometimes to their detriment because <laughs> they don't realize how much they can lose, but they'll just focus on the upside. Women will focus on the downside so I think that's why at least 25% of millennial women aren't even doing anything. I mean, they're not even putting their money to work in a 401k. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in my family, I have two sisters and they both have uh, daughters. So I have five nieces, no nephews. And those five nieces were an inspiration for me to write the book that I wrote called How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market. I turned that book into an online course because I really saw the value of it. But the idea was, how can I teach my five nieces how to invest, even if they're not studying finance and they're not invest, interested in investing, but you know, how can they take care of themselves? So when they turned 18, I gave each of them $3,000 and helped them set up, in their case, a Vanguard account and start at the age of 18 to build a portfolio 
of just, you know, a simple thing, which is, you know, a fund that just owns every stock in the world and then contribute. And I think that that, that book and that course, which, you know, I continue to expand is something that's a good starting point for a young person, you know? And I think that the point is nowadays there's enough out there that it's not so scary and overwhelming. It can be, if it starts actually, you know, I think, I'm curious what your answer to this to be, but for me, I would say if you delve into the world of finance and it starts to become really complicated, something's wrong. I would totally agree with you. I think it's just, it's a lot of knowledge and sometimes it can, that can be overwhelming, but even in teaching the CFA course, even that isn't brain surgery or it doesn't have the difficulty that engineering can can have, I can say that because I started studying engineering for a very short period of time and then quickly realized that was not going to work out. So I don't think it's that difficult. I think it's just taking a concerted effort and, and also having a curiosity. So I think doing what you did with your nieces, giving them the $3,000, you know, having them start a mutual fund account, I think that creates that curiosity and so then they're willing to delve into it a little bit further, especially when they start to see their account go up, right? I mean, that, that, <laughs> that's a motivator. So if they did it this year during the pandemic, they probably have done pretty well. And so they're you know, more apt to keep at it. Yep, 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 exactly. All right, well, that's a, a great background on you. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. I would say that my worst investment, it's probably plural. My first area that I analyzed were semiconductor stocks because the men that I worked with in my firm had been so burned by them in the 70s that by the time I got to this private boutique in San Diego, in the late 90s, I'm like, well, you handle this. And, you know, I don't have a background in engineering. And obviously, technology stocks can be extremely volatile, especially semiconductors. And I think that I learned very quickly, you have to understand the downside of anything you're potentially going to buy, whether it's a stock, a bond, a private investment. Otherwise, you're going to stick with that investment too long. So having that upside information, which we all, you know, we want to believe, okay, I'm going to make this percent or, you know, it's going to be worth this amount in a short period of time. But looking at what is the worst or the, what's the worst case scenario here in terms of what could this be worth if things go sideways with this business. Mm. And a few years later, I think that helped me a lot when I was the head of the tech sector for Wells Fargo, right before the tech bubble bursts. And I started looking at the downside of a lot of those stocks and had my analysts pull back on what we own. And if we didn't understand a downside in the situation, I was willing to sidestep the upside. Mm. 
and I still follow that today, that practice today, upside, capture, downside with anything that I put in a portfolio. And I, I might, that may mean like this year, I probably didn't hit the cover off the ball and some of my, with some of the managers I used, but more often than not, it means I lose less and therefore I make more over time. Mm. So tell us about that for just a moment. How could it be that losing less means making more? I think in the world of finance, most people think making more is how you make more. Oh, okay. Let me give an example. This was probably, I'm going to say it was luck because that way it'll happen. It'll happen again. Mm. Coming into the pandemic, I was concerned about some valuations and I used a manager that was he had been the head of derivatives at Barclays for a number of years, and now he's the head of derivatives at another major bank. And I saw that he had he was putting together a portfolio because he was also concerned about potential downside. And so, you know, using option overlays, calls and puts, when the market went down 30 some percent in March, that portfolio, which was a lot of my equity allocation was down five. Hmm. So being able to, you know, only lose five and then pivot when things got cheap and then reallocate, you know, saved me quite a bit of money. And so, no, I haven't, I haven't owned the high flying uh, mega technology stocks, you know, to a great degree, but the fact that I only went down five and I had, you know, allocations to managers that did well in other ways mm-hmm. helped me. And so that example is threaded throughout my, my portfolios since I started my firm over four years ago. Right. And I think the, the point is too, we're playing, you know, investing is a much longer game than most people realize. Yep. And, and when you look at losing you know, big over a long period of time, it just can be so damaging. So let me ask you, what, what actions would you recommend that our listeners take to make sure that they're managing for their downside, you know, and that they're understanding this and and making smart decisions? I think you need to evaluate the upside and downside in the different investments you hold. And that doesn't just mean the individual, you know, individual securities, but that also means within a particular style or market cap. So, you know, we've had some market caps that small growth has started to do well in the last few months. Small cap value is still negative, I think by more than 12% through the beginning of this week. I think I would move some money. I've moved some money around, taking money off the table with uh, the large cap growth managers that I have. Mm-hmm. We allocate to some of the small, some of the value, because as we get out of this pandemic, you're going to see more of a recovery and those smaller stocks and those more cyclical stocks should start doing well. And same for inter- international too, because they, a lot of international markets haven't had 
the upside that the U.S. market has. So I think there's a lot of room for upside once we get through, you know, the elections. I'm speaking from obviously Mm. U.S. perspective because we're going to probably have additional volatility. But, you know, typically the December after an election, you have 4% upside. If it's the incumbent, you probably have 8 to 11%. And I would expect next year to be a fairly decent year, especially when you look at the fact that we're sitting on over $4 trillion in money market funds in the United States. And also because everybody has switched to the belief, not that I agree with it, there is no other alternative to equities. You know, mm-hmm. and to a degree that is true because bonds aren't making what they used to make. And so you're having to seek that yield and that upside elsewhere if you're, whether you're an individual or an institutional investor. Got it. All right. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I'm going to say to do well with the reallocations that I just spoke of and also take advantage on the debt side or the fixed income side of the portfolio. We haven't had a lot of defaults because of all the fiscal stimulus, probably worldwide. So there are bond managers, a lot of bond managers I know are sitting on heavy allocations of cash because a lot of the defaults that we would have seen earlier, we're probably going to see beginning of next year, or maybe towards the end of the first quarter. And so you may have some really good opportunities for upside with a lot less risk that's associated with equities. Hmm. Interesting. That's exciting. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to go to myworstinvestmentever.com to get free access to my short course, Six Ways to Lose Your Money and Six Strategies to Win. As we conclude, Michelle, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Keep reading and keep looking at the downside as well as the upside and think of it as a long-term game as you spoke to earlier. It's investing. It's not gambling. That's the way you should approach your retirement and your, you know, your assets. Beautiful. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts saying, I'll see you on the upside.